Welcome to the Legendarium. You know, the best sentences and the best stories combine both the best adjectives and the best verbs. You sound like Donald Trump right now, I gotta be honest with you. It's the best. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome back to the Legendarium Podcast. This is episode number 150. I believe 152 we are discussing the gathering storm I am Craig Hanks your host and over there he's as ugly as a tow rocket and he can't even fly to make up for it it's Ken Johnson and that's when the screaming began and if you think Cad Swain is a useless lump of inhuman garbage just wait until you meet Ryan Bruckman (laughs) and I'm just as arrogant and irritating on other aspects too (laughs) and he loves the Dothraki so much I'm gonna nickname him Chode on Call it's Kyle Lemon Wait. Oh, what? yeah. How did that even... Okay. You just crossed over. <laughs> that was mashup wow. humor, baby. I'm still trying to catch up to that. Right. <laughs> I'm going to call a swing and a miss on that one. <laughs> <laughs> you can call it whatever you want. It was glorious. Uh, all right. Now, we we might sound a little bit weird, a little bit off today, because uh, normally we record in the evenings uh, you know, after kids have gone to bed and everything, but it's uh, it's been a very weird and difficult time as far as scheduling goes and so right now it's uh 9 a.m on a sunday morning and, so we, you're, you and know, we've all been drinking heavily and, and so your assumptions are true we are in fact pillow friends <laughs> <laughs> uh yeah so anyway i i told somebody on reddit that we weren't going to get to this until sometime next week and uh and then ryan was like no that's not going to happen for me and so we had to find some time this weekend to record I guess, uh, hey, at least we're getting the episode out on time, even if none of us are actually conscious to mm. make it. <laughs> Prepare for the shallowest dive into a book you've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, okay, so a little bit of housekeeping. Obviously, uh, as usual, patreon.com slash legendarium is where you can go uh, support the show on an ongoing basis and also head to our GoFundMe page for the new studio. Um, I spent the entire day yesterday working on that. So a little update. We've got the, uh, the concrete pad all squared up, had to pour a little extra concrete to square it up. And, um, and then we've got, uh, some of the base down for the walls. We built one of the walls and anyway, so things are coming along. It's not up yet, but we, we built but it. Still. Yeah. We haven't raised the wall. We're going to have a, we're going to have a barn raising here soon. A studio raising. That's right. Um, anyway, so you can support that particular project if you want to just kind of uh, donate a little bit of one-off and you can also as you know from maybe the last episode you can go to the gofundme page uh, to vote for the next thing that we read every dollar that you donate there uh, is one vote for the next thing we read so you can get the details there on our gofundme page um and uh what was the joke last time i'm five five hundred dollars will get us to read 50 50 shades Shades of gray Gray. i'm busy that week No, you're not. <laughs> no, you are not. Um, anyway, and then the other thing, Reddit, uh, thelegendarium.reddit.com is where you can go join the conversation, go uh, hang out with us there and have some conversations. Um, and there was uh, a gentleman who I was chatting with on Reddit who he found out he and I both, uh, I assume it's a gentleman, I guess. I don't actually know for sure. But we sense. both play Destiny 2. So yeah. if anybody wants to go play Destiny 2 on PS4, let me know. Uh, hit me up on Reddit, and we'll we will 
Clan it up, homies. Oh, it is early. Wow. Yeah. This is just... Okay, so let's talk... Yeah, right right off your your banter as early morning pour. <laughs> <laughs> we should record <laughs> every week in the morning so he has the excuse. <laughs> um, okay, let's talk the gathering storm. Now, we, we bade an emotional farewell to... Um, uh, that one guy, Masima. Robert Jordan. Oh, yeah. um, <laughs> I don't know which emotions we showed, but I'm sure they were there somewhere. Um, anyway, and this is the first book that Brandon Sanderson, uh, what do we say, contributed to, wrote, finished? Um, I'm not sure exactly how to I, put it. Yeah, I don't know because there obviously the story has been outlined by Jordan. There were, you know, Three million words of notes left behind. Um, I would still I say know, he wrote it. He yeah, typed I mean, the words. He, he definitely wrote it. Um, yeah. We can call it, it a collaboration. Yeah. Yeah, there um, you go. Um, anyway, so yeah, it's our first Brandon Sanderson one. And I got to be honest, I was a little bit thrown off because uh, halfway through this book, my uh, <laughs> Oathbringer <laughs> review copy came in the mail. And so I was bouncing between two Sanderson books, basically. And uh, so when I got up this morning to record this episode, I had to really kind of refresh myself, get out of Oathbringer mode and get into uh, Wheel of Time mode. Um, anyway, but I, I, I don't, I, I've talked to a lot of people who say, okay, so Robert Jordan wrote 11 books and some of them are great and some of them you kind of have to suffer through, so to speak. Uh, and then Brandon Sanderson comes and he saves the series. Now, I'm not willing to say that because book 11 was so strong um and uh, you know I, i think robert jordan was on a real good trajectory there so i i don't think it's fair to say sanderson saved the series but um just a, a high level overview ryan what are your thoughts on on how brandon sanderson has done so far in book 12 taking things over uh i absolutely think that he has been able to uh so actually let me put it this way He's able to do so well with this, not only because of his great ability to write and everything, but because he has such a condensed plethora of information to use that he has to write so much, cover so much that it to make this entering it was supposed to be a book. And he's like, that's not going to happen. That's it's going to end up being three. I mean, I, I, I would agree with the statement that um, he didn't save this series, not because because to me the series didn't need saving it, that's that yeah. was my point i'm i that was not a diss on sanderson yeah yeah it was just exactly this is just a matter of fact that he was able to maintain a high level of quality with very interesting material and move the pace along very quickly because he had so much to get done in a very short amount of time okay yeah very good uh ken what do you think i um it it was it, it felt i don't know i don't know if it was my projecting it onto the book because I knew Brandon Sanderson took over the collaboration, but it, it felt different at the first. It, it, the chapters came quicker. The pace kind of picked up, but toward the middle of the book, I, I got the feeling that he really has captured the feel of what Robert Jordan was going. It, it started to feel like a very Robert Jordan book to me, even though I knew Brandon Sanderson was writing it. So I, I, I chalked a lot of that up to Brandon Sanderson really got, the feel of what Robert Jordan was doing. And a lot of that is probably the notes that, uh, that Robert Jordan left. I mean, but I thought he did a fantastic job of picking up where Jordan left off. Yeah. So, so I guess, yeah, a lot of the same idea is that it didn't need saving 
I thought Jordan was on a he was on a, the right course. So Kyle, let me ask you something. Um, I, as I was reading this book, I noticed a few instances of say braid tugging or sure. arm folding, mm-hmm. uh, that sort of thing. And I thought to myself, okay, so Sanderson's got Jordan's notes. Mm-hmm. Um, he's got the story outline, but like we've said, he likely wrote most of the actual words that we're yeah, reading, right? Absolutely. How do you feel about um, him kind of appropriating some of those Jordanisms? Mm-hmm. Did it seem, uh, did it feel off to you at all? Or were you on board with him kind of trying to make it feel, as Ken says, like a Robert Jordan experience? I think that he did a very admirable job of making it feel as much like a Jordan experience as possible. And really as much as anybody could, you know, rightfully expect from a completely different author and completely different storyteller Mm -hmm. um there are a few instances of inconsistencies um but i don't think that they are necessarily detrimental to the story right so like people will bring up how sanderson writes matt in a very different way especially in this in this book it's and it's noticeable um that matt is different um the is, way... it, is it Matt that's different, or is it the Matt chapters that are different? Because I noticed a much bigger mm-hmm. difference in Tomanus than I did in Matt, Matt. Matt feels a little more like Kelsier than he feels like Matt to me in this book, um, to be honest. Kelsier from, from Mistborn. Mistborn. Yep. And I think that I think that as the book progresses and as Sanderson gets a handle on Matt a little bit better, he does narrow him down more to the subtle witty humor that Jordan uses with uh, with Matt and not quite as on the nose as we see, especially in the conversations between Matt and Talmanes in this in this uh, book. But some of the other things were like the way that he uses um, like bloody ashes or blood and bloody ashes. There's just a little bit of a difference there between blood and bloody ashes and just saying bloody ashes or bloody woman or I've whatever been, it is. I've been reading these books so long now mm-hmm. that my brain is and, going, dude, Kyle, stop swearing. This is a family show. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, and again, those aren't, they are, there are very minor inconsistencies and a lot of people will harp on those. For me, they don't, they're not jarring enough that they bring me out of the story. Something that you and I talked about at work was um, the very first chapter where we begin with the you know the wheel of time turns and all of that introduction and jordan has always started from you know Mm -hmm. his third person omniscient um narrator with the wind and then he always attaches it to a character and you immediately jump into um third person limited with whatever within like three paragraphs yeah or yeah if that like really quick and sanderson in this one took a couple of pages to do that the wind was kind of like sweeping over Tarvalin and it kind of like gives you an overview of what had just happened with Egwene and then it sweeps over a couple other places and then all of a sudden it finally comes to rest with Rand and it was just a little bit longer of a transition not to say that it was bad it was just different it was really jarring for me the first time I was going through it and I wonder if some of that is due to the fact that it this is him try writing this, sitting down, like just imagine him sitting down and going, all right, I need to assess everything I'm supposed to hit right here. Here's yeah. my notes, everything. The wind is going everywhere to start. Yeah. <laughs> it's almost like the previously on the wheel of time. Yeah. You know? <laughs> all right. I got to go to Gwen. Yeah, that's go a good here. point. Yeah, yeah I like that. Well, um, it, it's funny. You mentioned that also. I, I noticed early and, and later in the book too, but primarily early that a lot of the Sanderson 
written pieces, you you could kind of tell which ones they were because they were very expository. Mm-hmm. A lot of so, a lot of explaining who this person is and who that person is. Mm-hmm. Not not like coming out. Hey, you're Randall Thor, the Dragon Reborn, who is from Emmons Field, you know, or anything. But there was a lot of uh, a lot of little things that that Jordan might not have put in there, or a person who has been through twelve books of this wouldn't have said, "Oh, that's so and so," because we just know. So, but it, but it kind yeah. of threw it in there, and that kind of that kind of brings me to my other thought about the differences between Jordan and Sanderson, and the best analogy that I can use for this is that. Robert Jordan is primarily an adjective. So he has incredibly he has an incredible skill for description, for world building, for you know showing you his world through his words. And Brandon Sanderson is very much a verb. So you've got Jordan who is an adjective and Sanderson who is a verb. Sanderson is very action oriented. Not to say that neither of them can do the other thing. Sanderson can still paint a pretty vivid picture in your mind about what's happening, and Jordan can use some pretty good action. Um, you know, you see things like Dumais Wells or the cleansing of Sidene and things like that. They, they both can do both, but they're very much distinct in that Sanderson is very action-oriented, Jordan is very descriptive. And I think, you know, where you, you kind of mentioned like people say that Sanderson swooped in and saved the series is very disingenuous to say because one, it didn't need saving necessarily. And two, Sanderson is picking up the series in kind of in his wheelhouse, which is the climax of the series. (laughs) That's Um, a good point. And so he is very action oriented. He is probably the best I've seen as far as ramping up that action to the next level and then the next level. And then the next level. Yeah, exactly. And so I would argue, I think that there's a case to be made and, you know, people are about to scream at their, at their car (laughs) stereos, but there's a case to be made that, you know, the best sentences and the best stories combine both the best adjectives and the best verbs. You sound like Donald Trump right now. I got to be honest with you. It's the best. (laughs) (laughs) And so you could make a case that the wheel of time as constituted is the best version of the wheel of time that we could possibly hope for simply because you have the master uh descriptor and the apprentice setup and the master um finisher closer so you know comes in and and ramps up the action as much as possible um you could make the case that uh, it would have been way better to get jordan's version all the way through and yeah you're probably right but that's not how this worked out. And so I believe that this is the best version of the Wheel of Time that we could possibly hope for. Um, if it were a baseball game, it would have ended two innings earlier. What? That reference did not make any sense. <laughs> what are you talking about? Because it was supposed to be one book instead of three. So, I mean, oh, two innings earlier. Womp womp. Yeah, we'll get there later. We'll talk Baseball's about the thing. We'll talk about the extension of the story. Probably, I would imagine at the end of thirteen or even at the end of fourteen, the decision to make three books instead of one. Uh, okay, so maybe we should talk about what actually happens in this book. So there are. This book is one of my favorites for two very simple reasons. Uh, we largely leave behind Perrin and Fael. There's a little bit of uh, of POV with Perrin and Fael, and that's fine. We need to keep up with where they are and what they're doing, so that's fine. Um, we also leave behind Matt for the most part. We do get a few chapters with him, and that's fine. And 
and if this is the book where Sanderson was struggling to get his Matt legs under him, then it's good that he didn't spend mm-hmm. much time on Matt, right? You just liked because there was a lot of Egwene. There was so much Egwene, you guys. It, it was, was it was it the Egwenest book. She she was the uh she got the lion's share of the uh of the POV stuff. I think it was like twenty or twenty five percent. And I I loved it. I loved every minute of it. I don't care. I don't care. I love Egwene. I think she's great. And I, I, we don't need to rehash this entire argument, but um, at the very least, the Egwene chapters in this book, even if you don't like her, the Egwene chapters were freaking fantastic. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, sorry, back to what actually happened in this book. Like I said, we didn't get much uh, Perrin or Matt, but Rand, um, he, let's see, what happens? He's in Ebudar, and he's trying to stave off the Shanchan and Starvation. Uh, both mm-hmm. yeah. both of which are kind of ravaging Ebudar, and he fails uh, and walks away and walks away he that now that it's not like the Shan Chan invade but he just decides you know what I'm not doing much good here and he does fail to to get a uh, treaty signed with the Shan Chan and yeah. so he walks away and leaves the people to starve uh, this after he is chained by Grindal. Simurag. 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 He's chained by Simurag in a male item, and he is uh, made to choke out men, almost kills her, and uh, then he bale fires Simurag. How? What? How did he do that? With the with true the power. With the true power. Mm-hmm. Yeah. With, this, with the little saw he makers. Totally saws her to death. <laughs> uh, and then he goes and kills Grendel. Yeah. In her palace thing by bale firing an entire city, uh, then he. Wait, oh man, it was. A... Yeah. <laughs> then was. Amen. Rand was one scene away from walking into a room full of younglings and. Just... <laughs> no, he. Yeah, when he accesses the true power, there is a very noticeable shift, and Sanderson does a great job of showing that on the page. Right. There's a very noticeable shift of crazy unstable Rand to full on Darth Rand, like. Yeah. He is now ice cold, does not care, will sangreal your to the, town to death. To the point where when Tam shows up, uh, Tam oh, is almost able to break That's the ice. So uh, he he and Rand are having a, a reasonable heart-to-heart, mm-hmm. uh, as, as heart as Rand can get to Tam's heart. He's, he's finally talking and, Rand down after... And yeah. then it's revealed that Tam is there because Cad Swain brought him, and Rand loses his mind and almost kills Tam. He flees. He almost kills all of which city? The world. The creation. World. Well, he almost, yeah. well, no, no, no. He goes first, to Ebudar. First he goes, is, it's, is it Ebudar yeah. that he goes to? Is it oh, the Shan, yeah, because he was going to destroy the, the Shan, Shan, Shan. Shan. Maybe yeah. I was originally in the wrong city. Yeah. Sorry, everybody. Bandar um, Ebon or whatever that's called. Bandar Ebon? Yeah. Bandar Ebon. Anyways. Anyway, so he almost kills a whole city to destroy the Shan Chan. Uh, he doesn't. And then he goes to the top of Dragonmount where he starts uh, channeling from the Choidon Call, and he almost kills the entire world. And then he doesn't, and he is a uh, regular not Darth Rand. But it's anymore. important why he doesn't, too, because of the conversation that he and Luz Theron have. Lu, I mean, Luz basically talks him down. Luz? Luz. Yeah, first, first name basis. Me, yeah. Luz. Me and LTT, we're on a... You down with LTT? <laughs> yeah, you know me. Um, but he, he talks him, he basically talks him down. And should we just 
Well, and then they achieve. Uh, he and Luz there Which, achieve. What? What did? Uh, was it? Was it Grandmother Semirag? Who, reintegration. 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 He, he achieves reintegration, and the he oneness. says. He says uh, he somehow knows that he'll never hear Luz Th- Theron's voice again. Yeah, mm-hmm. not because he's gone, but because they're because, because he's accepting the fact that. So basically, what Rand has been doing this entire time is talking to himself. Is to, well talking to himself, but he's also been disregarding the fact that he is the one that's performing all of these atrocities. He's been blaming that on the crazy half of himself. He's been saying that I'm doing all of these things because of Luz Theron. Like, it's Luz Theron that killed these people or did that or did this, you know? Luz Theron so, you know, is yeah. the one who could seize the power from me. and, and Exactly. Yeah. And uh, He was Tyler Durden. He's, yeah, he's basically blaming Luz Theron for all of the bad things that Rand has done and saying, like, no, I'm Rand, I'm me, I'm the one that's trying to save the world and do all these good things. Luz Theron's the crazy person, the one that's doing all the bad things that's the dragon, or that is the dragon or whatever. And so on Dragon Mount, when he has his epiphany, he finally realizes, I am both. I am, I am responsible for, you know, all of these deaths. It is my fault, um, but I'm also responsible for um, basically the fate of the world and allowing people to live their lives and make those choices. Um, and that he, you know, he realizes that the reason that he's reborn is so that they have the second chance to do better. And I think it one of the things about this that I I really like and I was really concerned about having them ex, having it be explained and and be a good connection is the fact that I I, I I was always concerned about how is he getting the memories if Luz Theron isn't real how is he getting the memories well he Luz Theron was real mm-hmm. uh, they're just they are one long string in this in the thread mm-hmm. and Rand just has the ability like he just because they've reintegrated he has all of this connection from the beginning and end he's just He's not blocked off from his past lives like other people might be mm-hmm. um, because of being the dragon reborn. And so I, I appreciated that. I'm like, I can go with that. I'm fine with this as being the answer, not just yeah. Rand somehow did Banishes this. him. Or, yeah. Yeah. I just realized something that uh, I, I'm going to go all the way back to book one. It just with all this talk of, of uh, Rand is, in fact, the dragon reborn and it's not a voice in his head. It's his own voice and et cetera, et cetera. Um, I just realized it's awfully convenient, um, the timing of everything, that none of this, like, nothing, Rand had nothing weird happen to him before Moraine showed up. Mm-hmm. I'm just, uh, I'm just going back and thinking, that's, that's, that's uh, quite the coincidence. He only starts channeling once Moraine shows up. He only starts hearing Luz Theron's voice, you know, uh, once he, Moraine shows up. Well, he doesn't actually start hearing Luz Theron's voice really until like book six, I believe. No, no, it's earlier than that. Mm, he starts channeling, but I don't think that he actually converses with. Luce we're Theron. not. Yeah, we're not hearing conversations well, you, with Luz Theron right. until much later. Well, anyway, but there was still. I thought there was still like a voice in his head type thing. Not not the voice having conversation, but I thought he was still hearing something. Well, no, well, I I'm I don't think that it's quite that because I'm pretty sure. By the time we're, while well, we're still going through the Dragon Reborn, he's not, we're never getting a point of, like, a, a, he's never referenced as loose there in the voice in his head or whatever mm-hmm. through that. And I would, I'm going to guess that that's because he wasn't sure if that was going to go on type mm-hmm. thing. And then after that, it was, yeah, okay, let's go ahead and introduce it as Luce Theron. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm pretty sure it's, I'm with Kyle now, and I'm pretty sure it's not totally, I think it might be. I know finished. that, yeah, and I know that he's, he's instinctively done things. Like with one power or whatever else that he's like, I don't know how I did that, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
And so before he actually starts having conversations with Lucerne, but it's very much, uh, it's very tied to when he was in the box to when he actually starts working together with What's Lucerne. What's in the box? Exactly. <laughs> Sorry. Yes. Every time. Anyways, we don't have to, we can, we can move on to the next one. Uh, no, that's fine. The, the, well, the other thing is Egwene. And so if we have more Rand things to talk about, we can do that before we start talking about Egwene stuff. Um, I loved when he turned into Darth Rand and put Cad Swain in her place and exiled her, even though he's like terrible, horrible Darth Rand at this point. Maybe I we should still, talk about Cad Swain. I still Swain. want uh, to give him a big old high five <laughs> with his right hand, of course. High five, <laughs> high five to Cad Swain's face. Uh, a, high, yeah. a high nub. A high nub. Um, yeah, let's talk about, let's talk about Cad Swain. So <laughs> this has been a theme uh, in a lot of people's responses to some of our earlier episodes and especially my love of Moiraine uh, because it is uh, it is vibrant and unabashed. I love Moiraine so much. And uh, and I've had some really lengthy responses and well thought out responses. I I um I don't reject them out of hand. Uh, but people will say look at all these mistakes that Moiraine made. She's completely worthless. Um Moiraine is awful. Uh, Cad Swain is um, she she's flawed, but she's trying to do the right thing, etc. Blah, 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 blah. And I would just flip that around and say, no, that's how I would describe Moraine. You know, maybe she doesn't always succeed, but she uh, she's always trying to do the right thing. Cad Swain, on the other hand, is a completely worthless pile of garbage. Um, who? Well, well, never mind. Yeah, we'll just leave it there. She is completely worthless. Now, let's talk about why. And Kyle, you and I had a conversation about this a few days ago. Why do you remember what it was you said about why Cad Swain is so uh, ineffective compared to Moraine? Because she, she, unlike Moraine, is unwilling unwilling to change her tactics. Now you can argue, oh well, she's tried this or that, but basically what she's doing is she's poking the bear, in stoking Rand's anger, trying to teach him civility. But at this point, she's spent enough time with him that she needs to understand that that does not work. She has and, no empathy. And Moraine, Moraine did that. She would you know, try to manipulate him, try to tell him what to do, whatever. And then she realized at a certain point that that's not working and she became subservient to him. And I'm not saying that everybody needs to be subservient to Rand, but this was her next tactic, which was, let me see if I can gain his trust by being a little bit more subservient and willing to listen to him hear him out and talk him through stuff instead of saying you must do this or you have to do that she would make it more of a recommendation and let him decide um which is kind of you know stroking his ego a little bit which i think that you have to do and cad swain is very much more combative than than moraine was um and she's unwilling to change that tactic and she just simply pushes harder and harder and harder, which just makes Rand resist even more and more and more to the point of breaking. And now that he's broken, he has exiled her. And now she's really completely worthless. The way that you described it to me, uh, well, I mean, yes, we did discuss all of those things as well. But um, the way you described it to me that I really liked was that uh, Cad Swain is kind of looking at the big picture and she's looking at, uh, at the way... Mm -hmm the last she thinks the last battle is going to go and the things that need to happen and it's from an extremely self-centered point of view mm -hmm. it's all um what do i need to do to get 
Rand ready for the last battle? What what do I need to do to get the world ready for the last battle, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera. Um, and so she very much considers Rand a pawn, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a part of her scheme to defeat the Dark One. Moiraine, on the other hand, comes to realize, um, you know, perhaps she isn't always thinking this way, but she comes to realize that um, uh, she needs to take Rand's personality into account mm-hmm. and do what she can to help him achieve what he needs to, right? It's and interesting. So, and all of the big players that are trying to save the world, essentially. So let's talk about Cad Swain doing exactly what you just said. You know, what do I need to do to make sure that Rand fulfills his duty at the last battle? There was a scene with Tuan um, when she becomes the Empress, and she talks about how the Shan Chen prophecies say that the Dragon Reborn will kneel to the to the Crystal Throne and all of that. And that basically her plan was that we'd fight the last battle and that at the right point she was going to send in the Dragon Reborn to duel the Dark One, which mm-hmm. is the exact same thing that Elida said her plan was. What, this was Cad Swain said that? No, Cad Swain, Cad Swain, Tuan says yeah, right. this. But okay. Cad Swain's basically saying the same thing. What do I need to do to make sure that Rand's ready to be there? Mm-hmm. So they're all thinking like, Keep him in a box. Well, that's a really yeah. bad phrase to say with keep, him, but keep, keep him, him in a box. box or or can contain him or manipulate him and keep him over here and you know, keep him in the bullpen. And when it's time to throw yeah. him out. Oh, are we back to baseball? We're back to baseball because <laughs> oh, it's playoffs. Um But yeah, when it's time to throw him in and fight the dark one, we'll throw him in and fight the dark one. And nobody, including Cad Swain, Tuan, Moraine was starting to figure it out. Um you know, Egwene and all of the Aes Sedai in the White Tower, they all have the mindset of Rand needs to be there to fight the Dark One, but we're going to be handling everything else, basically. Basically, he's he's the weapon. We're the we're exactly. making the decision. And, yeah, nobody and asks, nobody's getting that. Yeah. And I, I honestly can say I think the one thing that Moraine had going for her that she figured out before anyone else and why she was best at it is the, her constant adherence to the phrase... The wheel weaves as the wheel wills. She kind of realized that she's not in control. Rand is going to be where he needs to be. He's going to be, you know, we're going to do everything we can to prep him. Um, And I'm I'm going to help him be that. But the it's it's the weaving of the pattern that's going to put him where he needs to be, not our machinations. Um, Machinations. Yep. and I think that is one of the biggest flaws with everyone else uh, trying to do, including Egwene. Yeah, everyone else is sitting and saying, we have to make it work according to this, instead of saying, you know what, the dragon was reborn because the wheel wove him back out, and it has a plan for him, that's what we need to let, we need to let that do its work and clear the path for him to be able to do what he wants to do. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah. You're I welcome. <laughs> <laughs> and well, yeah, scene. screw Cadswain. So... Okay, so screw Catswain forever. I I really was hoping that he would just bail fire her really, in the street when he saw her. And I really like, you know, Darth Rand puts her in his in her place and exiles her or whatever, and like calls her down, and she's all terrified. But the even better than that was when Tam returns to Catswain. Yes, Benny that's after. Did you want to? No, talk about that? That, that. You're doing a great job of. That's where I love when Tam comes back and says, "What have you done to my son?" Mm-hmm. basically and just dresses her down i was on team cadswain until this book and really and i was i like cadswain i thought i thought her methods were 
awful, but I thought she was doing the right thing. She was, I thought she was the tool. We're going to go back to the tool that was necessary to get Rand back to, to feeling some humanity and, and not becoming what he became. And it turns out that she was the driving force to, to turn him into Darth Rand and, and, Oh, she just irritates me so bad, and I, that's why I loved it when Tam comes back and says, basically says, "You were now you were using me as a tool mm-hmm. on my own son, and, he, and you are an awful human and being." He's and he's calling her down, yeah. and then she like lifts him up with the power, and then Nynaeve is trying to get Cadzwain to stop, and Tam's like, "It's okay, wisdom. I've dealt with bullies before, you know," and like basically calls Cadzwain a bully, and yeah. I'm just like, "Tam." You are sweet. You're yeah. the dad. Tam, Tam is so, it's funny because after book 11, I said when he showed up in book 11 with Perrin, I said, I want more Tam Althor. And then here he was. It's like oh. so, I, I legitimately was terrified that they were going to kill Tam in the in the sequence with Rand. I'm like, if you want if you want to really push him over an edge here and he kills off Tam, Tam that's the, a problem. I yep. was terrified because I'm like, no, we need yep. Tam. We need Tam. Don't do it. <laughs> so, Don't do it. My, if this was a Martin book, Tam would have been dead. Yeah. <laughs> uh, my thought on Tam uh, that I expressed to Kyle earlier before we were recording was that um, it's funny how we all love Tam so much because Tam is, uh, he's unremarkable. He's not particularly powerful. He's not exciting. He's not interesting. What he is, is he's solid. He yep. is he's um, steadfast. The way, the way that, um, that uh, psychologists talk about how people need their fathers for X, Y, and Z reasons. Like Tam fills all those reasons, not just for Rand, but for the reader as well. He's this like solid oak in the middle of this uh, churning story, yeah. right? And uh, and he's so he's the great father figure, you know, in more ways than one in the book, right? right. I'd agree with about ninety five percent of that. I don't think that he's unremarkable. The man's a freaking blade master. Well, yeah, by accident. Yeah. I would I would love a prequel story of Rand or Tam. Tam being the captain of the whatever they're called the Carrion and soldiers that he captained right. during the Iowa War. That would be mm-hmm. really cool. I I honestly think there's read, but. I think Tam's more remarkable than he lets on. I mean, even when he talked about the Blade Master, I, which that was such a great scene when Rand was finally coming back down and they were just talking. He's like, "I'm sorry, I lost your sword," you know, and mm-hmm. and, stuff. and and Tam has the the perfect temperament for what Rand needs right now. He's like, that's fine. You know, basically it's just a sword. And I didn't really deserve it anyway. He's like, well, yeah, you were a blade master. Well, yeah. He's going to downplay it. And he was going to downplay it. And I'm, I'm sure he was way more awesome in that oh, yeah. than he's going to let on. But he's just we so grounding s- that. With the exception of maybe Rand killing the blade master in um, two. Great, yeah, in Great Hunt. Every other Blade Master sequence ever in the book series, in any of it, like there's no way you accidentally kill a Blade Master. Right. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, certainly not Ken. <laughs> you can't uh, kill me. <laughs> I. I want to jump back. I, I, I it's a, it is a point that struck so hard and uh, home to me that I want to talk about because we just kind of glazed over the fact that Rand almost destroyed all of creation. <laughs> it's kind of a huge deal. Oh yeah, and then he almost killed everything. <laughs> Whatever. What if the book just ended? Like, what if like halfway through it was just blank pages from then on <laughs> because he just destroyed the pattern? We're making an artistic statement. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's your fan fiction. Just you just send someone a bunch of blank pages there, and then the pattern ends. But I, I think, and I feel that that whole uh, moment on Dragon Mount with Rand 
is important not only because he chose not to destroy creation, but because he found a new purpose in that moment and a reason to keep fighting because he has really kind of resigned himself over the last few books to the idea that I'm going to die. My job is to go and sacrifice and die when I fight the Dark One um, so that the world can continue on. And that is a terrible, terrible way to approach something. It's like, well, my job is to just go and die. He's doing it. He knows he's probably still will die, but he's now got a purpose and a reason for it. And it it all came is uh, I have to pull up my note here. Da, 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 da. Because each time we live, we get to love again. And frequently, you know, the concept of love is used in a very cliche way. It's like, oh, love is the greatest power, whatever. Mm -hmm. But legitimately, the buildup in this series allowed this payoff to not feel cliche for me for it to be about love because of how much of what Rand has been through and the, the different people who are around him, how much of it has been affected by their love for him and his love for them and the way mm -hmm. he, he deals with mm -hmm. those. And Oh, go ahead. No, go. I was going to say, as you were talking about that, it, it just reminded me of one of my notes that I put. We talk, we've talked several times about how terrible Robert Jordan is at writing love and romance within the romance. series. Yes. Romance. 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 But the greatest love story in The Wheel of Time is Luz, Theron, and Ileana. Yeah. Because we don't see it on screen all that much, but it emanates through the whole series. Like, it's all over the place. And in this scene in particular, Luz Theron's talking about, or I guess Rand, I mean, they're both, they're the same now. Mm -hmm. But he's talking about how if he could be re reborn, and if we're all reborn, then she will be reborn again. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, when he says that, he's referring to Ilyena, and it's like this great overlying love story that's happening, which is really cool. So, Which, I mean, it, it connects to some of the other, It's an, there's another love story in the series that is in a very similar vein that I really like, even though you, we don't see anything of it really much, and that's uh, Brigida and um, um, Gail Kane. Mm -hmm. You know, this idea that there are people and that this love transcends the life of the person and extends through the entirety of the pattern. Mm -hmm. There are people who will constantly come back in and, and be connected. So, the, you know, if I, you, I you can feel like I need to start on to my, uh, my soapbox about the movie Interstellar, because this is tying really <laughs> nicely into the movie Interstellar. Sorry, go on, Ryan. No, you're fine. Um, oh, dang it, my thought. <laughs> you can't cut me off in the morning. It doesn't work. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, I, I think there's... Okay, I'm sorry. I, I'll go on a very short soapbox rant about the movie interstellar because i do think it applies here and that is that um the point of the movie interstellar is that man fears time and man loves in order to fight against the the forces of time and decay and all that stuff that is the the point of love according mm -hmm. to, the, to the movie interstellar and um anyway so i think that kind of applies to what you were talking about here um yeah why why is why is life worth living or how do we um how do we deal with the idea of loss uh it's with love which is, mm -hmm. uh, is a, a form of hope perhaps you might well, say and if you take love out of it then ishamael is 100 percent correct in all of his beliefs which there's no point which is there is no point to any of this which is you know like if rand wins in the last battle 
then eventually the wheel's going to keep turning and there's going to be another battle. And so it's pretty much futile to resist. But when you calculate the love factor in there and that it's the experiences and relationships and love that happens during those turnings of the wheel that are worth saving, you know, Ishmael doesn't have that. He doesn't mm-hmm. have any kind of relationship or whatever with anyone. And so for him, yeah, if the if the pattern stops and the wheel breaks, that is the definitive end of all things, and that's the logical conclusion. But he's not calculating in the fact of all of the experiences and relationships that happen within the wheel. Isn't it remarkable that um, we we kind of tend to sneer a little bit uh, sometimes when when somebody says well it's all about love oh gosh oh here comes the love cliche but then how many of our most uh well for lack of a better word beloved stories have this as the central theme theme. yeah there's a there's a book um out there called audition uh, by michael shirtliff and actors know it by heart it's nigh unto a bible um and one of the key things it talks about as you're developing character, um, developing a character and things like that is uh, he talks about making the strongest choice possible. And 95% of the time, almost 100% of the time, the strongest choice is love. It is the strongest choice you can make because it, it, will, create, it will create the strongest emotions, the strongest draw in you, and will provide the strongest conflict when something gets in the way of that. Whatever the love is for, whatever the love is um, driven, is aimed at the greatest conflict or any conflict that comes between that will, will really drive you because you will want that more than anything else. Um, and so it doesn't really matter what scene you're playing. You need to find out what it is, what, where love fits in it. And, you know, if you're fighting with someone, you know, the reason the fight has power or the reason the fight means anything or has power is because you love, it. because if you didn't care about the person, you wouldn't, you wouldn't fight over it. If you didn't care about something, you don't fight for it. And I think that, um, that is a, something that is true not only as a, as a performer there, but in all those in all of our stories, um, we find that someone has a love for something that is make that makes them willing to sacrifice something themselves or give up something uh, for a greater thing because of that love. So it really is the you know that cliche trope that it is the greatest power of all because it's the one power that drives people to sacrifice themselves for something else. I think that was a theme. Throughout the book, not just with Rand, though, I mean, because Nynaeve and Dagion talk about that, too, when uh, Nynaeve offers to heal the pain away of of Dagion losing her warder. And she says, why would I want to give that up? Why would I want to give up that pain? Because that pain comes from having loved, you know, something. I got a quote. Um, And she she says, if if the power causes the pain, then the power can take the pain away. And so Dagion says, why would... I want that. Well, it's because the pain it hurts. It should hurt, Daigion said. Eben is dead. Would you want to forget that pain if you lost that hulking giant of yours, referring to Lan? Having your feelings for him cut away like some spoiled chunk of flesh in an otherwise good roast, you, you, don't, you don't take the pain away just because it's the pain. The pain is there because the love was so strong. And, and that's important. The love is strong. Or, or the, the pain is strong because the love is strong. And, and that's the point. I think of both. You need it reminds both. me of power uh, contrast. Yeah. Did you ever see uh, Lawrence of Arabia? There's that scene where the guy does the trick with the match, and uh, he puts out a match with his bare hand, mm. and then somebody else, one of the other officers, tries to do it, and it burns his hand, and he 
yelps a little bit and he says, how, what's the trick? He says, the trick, my dear boy, is not minding that it hurts. Um, Lawrence of Arabia, the best of the Star Wars prequels. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, but yeah, yeah, there's, there's a trick to dealing with pain and that's not minding that it hurts, understanding that it hurts for the for the reason of, hurts, of love yeah. yeah we understand why it hurts yeah um anyway uh let's let's shall we switch gears let's talk we've talked about love um which has made me very uncomfortable in this very small closed room with four grown men a um, circle of pillow friends apparently that's right <laughs> uh and i want to talk there's no love in pillow friends <laughs> <laughs> I want to talk about uh, the Forsaken okay. a little yes. bit. Yes. The opposite of love. Because we've got, uh, I'd say we've got another 10 minutes. So let's see what we can talk about here. Now, I want to posit uh, a couple of things here. As I was reading the uh, the prologue, I thought, oh, okay, so somebody says, um, uh, da, 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 Moradin certainly was lacking in imagination lately. Everything of black and red. Who else is on black and red? That reminds me of Taim's throne room in the Black Tower, uh, where everything is of black and red. So I thought, oh, shoot, is he Moradin in disguise or something? Uh, But then I but then further on, there's a quote, uh, Demondred liked having armies to command, but there were none left moving in the world. And so then I thought, well, he sh- certainly would like to have an army of Ashaman, perhaps. I, I thought of you when I read that too, like because you and uh, in their little council in the prologue, Demondred says, "This is the quote that I brought." This is all he says: "My rule is secure. I gather for war. We will be ready." Yep. Oh, yeah. So Demondred has got to be Taim. Yes. Yes. I think you're onto something. Okay. <sighs> well, anyway. Let's uh, let's do a little Forsaken count, and then maybe uh, if we have anything else to say about the Forsaken, we can do that in the next few minutes. So, we still have Morden and uh, and that guy. Demondred. Okay, Demondred. Who else is still alive? By my count, Arangar is still alive. Sindane, who was Lanfear, uh, Masana, and Mogadin. So that's six. seven? Six. Lanfear and, and Sindane are the same person, so oh, six. right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, does yeah, that sound get, about they right? They get kind? renamed oh. when they get reborn as yeah. a yep, yep, yep. like a mark of humiliation. So, so yeah, so three of them of... are three of them are renamed, and three of them still have their same name. So I want to bring up one more thing about Moradin. Okay. Quote. So this is right after. So well, this is I guess two things. Moradin sends out this manhunt for Matt and Perrin, right? So he says he gives them all their descriptions to the rest of the Forsaken. Hunt these two down. Kill them. You are forbidden to harm Rand in any way. And then immediately after he forbids the Forsaken in harming Rand, not even like don't kill him, don't harm him. Quote, Morden looked down, flexing his left hand as if it were stiff. Grandel caught a hint of pain in his expression. Yeah, so he they're very much connected, yep. he and Rand. So I wanted to bring to that to your point of him dressing in, in black and red. Watch out for who else likes to dress in black and red. Well, Rand does. Rand Althor. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it's just painting an even tighter 
connection between that's those. That's true. So what happens well, when I, Balefire crosses? You end up getting the same fashion sense. Same fashion <laughs> sense. Well, and going along with that, when oh, they talk... Oh, is that what it was? Is that what yeah. connected them? The crossing stream? Ooh. Okay, sorry. Well, and, and when they were talking in the dream world, each of them thought they were pulled into the other's dream. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was really interesting, too, because like at the very end of the book, we'd noticed you know, when Rand ha- achieves reintegration, and he says he's pretty sure that he's never going to hear Luz Theron's voice again. In that dream where each of them said, like, why are you in my dreams? And Or Rand says, why are you in my dreams? I thought I blocked you. And Morden says, no, you've jumped into my dream. He doesn't hear Luz Theron's voice. He doesn't voice. hear Luz Theron, Theron at all. Theron's yeah. voice in the dream. So, I don't know. Dun, dun, dun. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. And what else do we want to talk about? There's... Um... I got a couple of rapid fire bullet points if you want. Um, sure. Save, Gow- save some for next episode. Sure. Gowan Trakhand sucks. Is the most. <laughs> this is what I wrote in my notes. Gowan Trakhand is the most non-contributing zero in all of fantasy literature. He's the stupidest sack of bones and meat to ever <laughs> carry a sword. <laughs> That's only because Catswain never carries one. Oh, man, he's the worst. He is the worthless. Ah, <laughs> okay, so he's the he's a bumbling fool with but uh, that's not physically incompetent. He's yeah, even okay. worse than so, his brother, and his brother doesn't do anything. He, uh, wa- walk me through it. Walk me through it. So why do you hate him so much? What happens with him in this book? Because who cares? Well, there is that. Right? Elaine. <laughs> or Egwene. Egwene cares. So, so my, my, I, at first, as I was reading through the book, I thought to myself, okay, I don't care about this Gowan chapter. I don't care if he gets back to Egwene, whatever. As the book was progressing, I thought, oh, okay, so we needed to get Gowan into the camp so that he could stage the rescue of Egwene mm-hmm. when the White Tower was attacked. But then it ends up being him and Swan and Garth Bryn. Why did we need Gowan in the first place? He didn't actually, like, story-wise. Yeah. He didn't need to be there. And so, yeah, by the end of the book, I was back to, yeah, I don't care about Gowan. Yeah. Can, can I throw something out there just to think about? That there are two more books left to read? <laughs> well, yes, there are two more books, but I mean, that's that's a really long series to have only validated character for two books. Um <laughs> But what I don't think that Gowan provides a whole lot of useful things himself, but it's his connection with Egwene that is going to be important. Like, I feel like that's where, like, his job is to be the reverse damsel in distress for Egwene. Does that make sense? Yeah, sure. He's going to be Egwene is going to the opposite of a damsel. Quick, dude. <laughs> I, I don't believe that you know in medieval times it was i guess the damsels and the dudes over here Although, i can't wait for that damsel book. would be a dame so would it that's, be a duke that's that's totally a rom-com waiting to happen the damsel and the dude if if anybody there, there's a friend of the podcast um who uh, was one of the stars of mythica who was in a very very funny b-movie comedy called dudes and dragons oh yeah that's right gotta go look that up it <laughs> was right. pretty hysterical sorry anyway um okay so dude in distress well i i think that that's he's being set up to provide Egwene with a choice so at some point in time she's gonna have to choose between the white tower and him or he's gonna have to do something to to provide to there he he's he's a sacrifice waiting to happen is basically what i feel Uh, like he's a sacrifice waiting to happen 
He's a sack, all right. <laughs> sack, useless he's a sack, sack of, of rice. And meat. <laughs> what a sack of rice. Well, he's already he's already going to have a conflict because he wants to go back and be Elaine's uh, sword master or whatever, whatever they're called. It, you know, her, her master first master, sword. Yeah, first sword or master yeah. sword, whatever. The master sword. Yes, the master he's going to be his master sword. Yeah, and but Egwene wants him to be his warder, her warder, and so and I, he probably would want to do that. So I don't know. <sighs> and and all the while, which, neither one of those matters. Which honestly, why didn't that happen like immediately? Yeah, I mean, the both of them knew that that was what they wanted. Why didn't that just say, "Oh, hey, welcome back"? Yes, I'm the I'm say, Yeah, come over here real quick. You're my warder. We're because good. <laughs> nobody talks to anybody in this entire series. Well, and I mean, we'll we'll talk about Egwene in the next uh, episode, but she's yeah. got her own. Issues, psychological issues, issues yeah. going on that would prevent her from doing something rash the way that um, that Swan did with Gareth Bryn. So, mm-hmm. um, okay, well let's let's on that note we have a lot of Egwene stuff to talk about, so let's leave it here for now. Um, and I apologize to everybody who's used to us going for like an hour and five minutes because we can't contain ourselves. But I am being I, I I'm being st- principled today i'm taking a stand and saying that this episode will be less than an hour um so anyway thank you everybody for listening and hang in there for the next episode i believe it will be episode number 153 i don't think we have one planned for between these two so uh, you shouldn't have to wait more than a week for us to get to episode 153 we'll talk about Egwene stuff and uh, we'll see you all then. Head to patreon.com slash legendarium to support the show on an ongoing basis. And go to our GoFundMe page to support the construction of the new studio that will allow not just a better space for us to do the podcast, but also a space for us to do video as well. Um, I'll I'll post some pictures and maybe a video on Reddit so you guys can all check out uh, the progress on the studio so far. Um the uh, donations that have come in so far have been awesome. You've basically paid for the concrete work and uh, most of the framing lumber that we needed to buy. So, and our first wall. Uh, thank you very much to everybody who supported us there, and I, I hope that more of you will continue to do so through the month of October. Um, is there anything else? No, I guess not. So thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you next time, and uh, uh, go kill a Forsaken for me. <laughs>